0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. Our first story today, The Flayed Hand, by Guy de Maupassant. One evening, about eight months ago, I met with some college comrades at the lodgings of our friend Louis R. We drank punch and smoked, talked of literature and art, and made jokes like any other company of young men. Suddenly the door flew open, and one who had been my friend since boyhood burst in like a hurricane— "'Guess where I come from?' he cried. "'I bet on the Mabille,' responded one. "'No,' said another. "'You're too happy you come from borrowing money, "'from burying a rich uncle, or from pawning your watch. "'You're getting sober,' cried a third. "'And as you scented the punch in Louis's room, "'you came up here to get drunk again.' "'You are all wrong,' he replied. "'I come from Normandy, where I have spent eight days,' And whence I have brought one of my friends, a great criminal, whom I ask permission to present to you. With these words, he drew from his pocket a long black hand, from which the skin had been stripped. It had been severed at the wrist. Its dry and shriveled shape, and the narrow, yellowed nails still clinging to the fingers, made it frightful to look upon. The muscles, which showed that its first owner had been possessed of great strength, were bound in place by a strip of parchment like skin. Just fancy! Said my friend. The other day they sold the effects of an old sorcerer, recently deceased, well known in all the country. Every Saturday night he used to go to witch gatherings on a broomstick. He practiced the white magic and the black, gave blue milk to the cows, and made them wear tails like that of the companion of St. Anthony. The old scoundrel always had a deep affection for this hand, which he said was that of a celebrated criminal, executed in 1736 for having thrown his lawful wife. "'head first into a well, "'for which I do not blame him, "'and then hanging in the belfry "'the priest who had married him. "'After this double exploit he went away, "'and during his subsequent career, "'which was brief but exciting, "'he robbed twelve travellers, "'smoked a score of monks in their monastery, "'and made a seraglio of a convent. "'But what are you going to do "'with this horror?' we cried. "'Eh, parbleu! "'I will make it the handle to my doorbell "'and frighten my creditors.' "'My friend,' said Henry Smith, a big phlegmatic Englishman, "'I believe that this hand is only a kind of Indian meat, preserved by a new process. I advise you to make bouillon of it.' "'Rail not, messieurs,' he said, with the utmost sang-froid, a medical student who was three-quarters drunk. "'But if you follow my advice, Pierre, you will give this piece of human debris Christian burial, for fear lest its owner should come to demand it. Then, too,' "'This hand has acquired some bad habits, "'for you know the proverb, "'who has killed will kill.' "'And who has drank will drink,' "'replied the host, "'as he poured out a big glass of punch "'for the student who emptied it at a draught "'and slid dead drunk under the table. "'His sudden dropping out of the company "'was greeted with a burst of laughter, "'and Pierre, raising his glass "'and saluting the hand, cried, "'I drink to the next visit of thy master.' "'Then the conversation turned "'upon other subjects,' and shortly afterward each returned to his lodgings. About two o'clock the next day, as I was passing Pierre's door, I entered and found him reading and smoking. "'Well, how goes it?' said I. "'Very well,' he responded. "'And your hand? My hand? Did you not see it on the bell pole? I put it there when I returned home last night. But, apropos of this, what do you think?' Some idiot, doubtless to play a stupid joke on me, came ringing at my door towards midnight. I demanded who was there, but as no one replied, I went back to bed again, and to sleep. At this moment the door opened, and the landlord, a fat and extremely impertinent person, entered without saluting us. "'Sir,' said he, "'I pray you to take away immediately the carrion which you have hung to your bell-pole. Unless you do this, I shall be compelled to ask you to leave.' "'Sir,' "'responded Pierre, with much gravity. "'You insult a hand which does not merit it. "'Know you that it belonged to a man of high breeding?' "'The landlord turned on his heel "'and made his exit without speaking. "'Pierre followed him, detached the hand, "'and affixed it to the bell cord hanging in his alcove. "'That is better,' he said. "'This hand, like the brother, all must die, "'of the trappist, will give my thoughts a serious turn "'every night before I sleep.' At the end of an hour I left him and returned to my own apartment. I slept badly the following night, was nervous and agitated, and several times awoke with a start. Once I imagined, even, that a man had broken into my room, and I sprang up and searched the closets and under the bed. Towards six o'clock in the morning I was commencing to doze at last, when a loud knocking at my door made me jump from my couch. It was my friend Pierre's servant, half-dressed, pale, and trembling." "'Sir!' cried he, sobbing. "'My poor master! "'Someone has murdered him!' "'I dressed myself hastily "'and ran to Pierre's lodgings. "'The house was full of people "'disputing together, "'and everything was in a commotion. "'Everyone was talking at the same time, "'recounting and commenting on the occurrence "'in all sorts of ways. "'With great difficulty I reached the bedroom, "'made myself known to those guarding the door, "'and was permitted to enter. Four agents of police were standing "'in the middle of the apartment.' pencils in hand, examining every detail, conferring in low voices and writing from time to time in their notebooks. Two doctors were in consultation by the bed on which lay the unconscious form of Pierre. He was not dead, but his face was fixed in an expression of the most awful terror. His eyes were open their widest, and the dilated pupil seemed to regard fixedly, with unspeakable horror, something unknown and frightful. His hands were clenched. I raised the quilt, which covered his body from the chin downward, and saw on his neck, deeply sunk in the flesh, the marks of fingers. Some drops of blood spotted his shirt. At that moment one thing struck me. I chanced to notice that the shriveled hand was no longer attached to the bell cord. The doctors had doubtless removed it to avoid the comments of those entering the chamber where the wounded man lay, because the appearance of this hand was indeed frightful. I did not inquire what had become of it. I now clipped from a newspaper of the next day the story of the crime with all the details that the police were able to procure. It read as thus. A frightful attempt was made yesterday on the life of young M. Pierre B., student, who belongs to one of the best families in Normandy. He returned home about ten o'clock in the evening and excused his valet, Bovine, from further attendance upon him, saying that he felt fatigued and was going to bed. Towards midnight, Bovine was suddenly awakened by the furious ringing of his master's bell. He was afraid, and lighted a lamp and waited. The bell was silent about a minute, then rang again with such vehemence that the domestic, mad with fright, flew from his room to awaken the concierge, who ran to summon the police, and, at the end of about fifteen minutes, two policemen forced open the door. A horrible sight met their eyes. The furniture was overturned, giving evidence of a fearful struggle between the victim and his assailant. In the middle of the room, upon his back, his body rigid, with livid face and frightfully dilated eyes, lay motionless young Pierre B., bearing upon his neck the deep imprints of five fingers. Dr. Bourdine was called immediately, and his report says that the aggressor must have been possessed of prodigious strength, and have had an extraordinarily thin and sinewy hand." "'because the fingers left in the flesh of the victim five holes like those from a pistol-ball, "'and had penetrated until they almost met. "'There is no clue to the motive of the crime "'or its perpetrator. "'The police are making a thorough investigation.' "'The following appeared in the same newspaper next day. "'Mr. Pierre B., the victim of a frightful assault "'of which we published an account yesterday, "'has regained consciousness after two hours "'of the most assiduous care by Dr. Bourdine.' His life is not in danger, but it is strongly feared that he has lost his reason. No trace has been found of his assailant. My poor friend was indeed insane. For seven months I visited him daily at the hospital where we had placed him, but he did not recover the light of reason. In his delirium strange words escaped him, and like all madmen he had one fixed idea. He believed himself continually pursued by a specter. One day they came for me in haste, saying he was worse, and when I arrived I found him dying. For two hours he remained very calm, then, suddenly, rising from his bed in spite of our efforts, he cried, waving his arms as if a prey to the most awful terror. Take it away! Take it away! It strangles me! Help! Help! Twice he made the circuit of the room uttering horrible screams, then fell face downward, dead. As he was an orphan, I was charged to take his body back to his little village in Normandy, where his parents were buried. It was the place from which he had arrived the evening he found us drinking punch in Louis R.'s room, when he had presented to us the flayed hand. His body was enclosed in a leaden coffin, and four days afterwards I walked sadly beside the old cure, who had given him his first lessons, to the little cemetery where they dug his grave, and sunshine from a cloudless sky flooded the earth. Birds sang from the blackberry bushes, where many a time, when we were children, we had stolen to eat the fruit. Again I saw Pierre and myself creeping along behind the hedge, and slipping to the gap that we knew so well, down at the end of the little plot where they bury the poor. Again we would return to the house with cheeks and lips black with the juice of the berries we had eaten. I looked at the bushes. They were covered with fruit. Mechanically I picked some and bore it to my mouth. The cure had opened his breviary and was muttering his prayers in a low voice. I heard at the end of the walk the spades of the gravediggers who were opening the tomb. Suddenly they called out. The cure closed his book. "'and we went to see what they wished of us. "'They had found a coffin. "'In digging a stroke of the pickaxe "'had started the cover, "'and we perceived within "'a skeleton of unusual stature "'lying on its back, "'its hollow eyes seeming yet to menace and defy us. "'I was troubled, "'I know not why, "'and almost afraid. "'Hold!' cried one of the men. "'Look there!' "'One of the rascal's hands had been severed at the wrist. "'Ah! "'Here it is!' "'and he picked up from beside the body a huge withered hand "'and held it out to us. "'See!' cried the other, laughing. "'See how he glares at you, as if he would spring at your throat "'to make you give him back his hand?' "'Go,' said the cure. "'Leave the dead in peace, and close the coffin. "'We will make poor Pierre's grave elsewhere. "'The next day all was finished, and I returned to Paris "'after having left fifty francs with the old cure,' for masses to be said for the repose of the soul of him whose sepulchre we had troubled. We'll return to our second story right after this sponsor message. And now, The Vengeance of a Tree, by Eleanor F. Lewis. Through the windows of Jim Daly's saloon, in the little town of Caesar, the setting sun streamed in yellow patches, lighting up the glasses scattered on the tables and the faces of several men who were gathered near the bar. Farmers, mostly they were, with a sprinkling of shopkeepers, while prominent among them was the village editor, and all were discussing a startling piece of news that had spread through the town and its surroundings. The tidings that Walter Stedman, a laborer on Albert Kelsey's ranch, had assaulted and murdered his employer's daughter had reached them and had spread universal horror among the people. A farmer declared that he had seen the deed committed as he walked through a neighboring lane and, having always been noted for his cowardice, instead of running to the girl's aid, had hailed a party of miners who were returning from their midday meal through a field nearby. When they reached the spot, however, where Stedman, as they supposed, had done his black deed. Only the girl lay there, in the stillness of death. Her murderer had taken the opportunity to fly. The party had searched the woods of the Kelsey estate, and just as they were nearing the house itself, the appearance of Walter Stedman walking in a strangely unsteady manner toward it made them quicken their pace. He was soon in custody, although he had protested his innocence of the crime. He said that he had just seen the body himself on his way to the station, and that when they had found him he was going to the house for help but they had laughed at his story, and had flung him into the tiny, stifling calaboose of the town. What were their proofs? Walter Stedman, a young fellow of about twenty-six, had come from the city to their quiet town, just when times were at their hardest, in search of work. The most of the men living in the town were honest fellows, doing their work faithfully, when they could get it, and when they had socially asked Stedman to have a drink with them, he had refused in a rather scornful manner. That infernal city chap, he was called, and their hate and envy increased in strength when Albert Kelsey had employed him in preference to any of themselves. As time went on, the story of Stedman's admiration for Margaret Kelsey had gone afloat, with the added information that his employer's daughter had repulsed him, saying that she would not marry a common laborer. So Stedman, when this news reached his employer's ears, was discharged, and this, then, was his revenge for them these proofs were sufficient to pronounce him guilty. Yet that afternoon, as Stedman, crouched on the floor of the jail, grew hopeless in the knowledge that no one would believe his story, and that his undeserved punishment would be swift and sure, a tramp, boarding a freight car several miles from the town, sped away from the spot where his crime had been committed, and knew that forever its shadow would follow him. From the tiny window of his prison Walter Stedman could see the red glow of the heavens that betokened the setting of the sun, so the red sun of his life was soon to set, a life that had been innocent of all crime, and that now was to be ended for a deed that he had never committed. Most prominent of all the visions that swept through his mind was that of Margaret Kelsey, lying as he had first found her, fresh from the hands of her murderer. But there was another of a more tender nature, how long he and Margaret had tried to keep their secret until Walter could be promoted to a higher position, so that he could ask for her hand with no fear of the father's antagonism. Then came the remembrance of an afternoon meeting between the two in the woods of the Kelsey estate. How, just as they were parting, Walter had heard footsteps near them, and glancing sharply round, saw an evil, scowling, murderous face peering through the brush. He had started toward it, but the owner of the countenance had taken himself hurriedly off. The gossiping townspeople had misconstrued this romance, and when Albert Kelsey had heard of this clandestine meeting from the man who was later on to appear as a leader of the mob— "'and that he had discharged Stedman. "'They had believed that the young man "'had formally proposed and had been rejected. "'But justice had gone wrong, "'as it had done innumerable times before, "'and will again. "'An innocent man was to be hanged, "'even without the comfort of a trial, "'while the man who was guilty "'was free to wander where he would. "'That autumn night the darkness came quickly, "'and only the stars did their best to light the scene. "'A body of men, all masked, "'and having as a leader one who had ever since Stedman's arrival in town cherished a secret hatred of the young man, dragged Stedman from the jail and tramped through the town, defying all, defying even God himself. Along the highway and into Farmer Brown's crosscut they went, vigilantly guarding their prisoner, who, with the lanterns lighting up his haggard face, walked among them with the lagging step of utter hopelessness. That's a good tree, their leader said, presently stopping and pointing out a spreading oak. When the slipknot was adjusted and Stedman had stepped on the box, he added, "'If you've got anything to say, you'd better say it now.' "'I am innocent. I swear before God,' the doomed man answered. "'I never took the life of Margaret Kelsey.' "'Give us your proof,' jeered the leader. And when Stedman kept the despairing silence, he laughed shortly. "'Ready, men.' He gave the order. The box was kicked aside, and then— "'Only a writhing body swung to and fro in the gloom. "'In front of the men stood their leader, "'watching the contortions of the body with silent glee. "'I'll tell you a secret, boys,' he said suddenly. "'I was after that poor murdered girl myself, "'and damn little chance I had. "'But by God, he had just as little. "'A pause, and then... "'He's left this earth. Cut him down, you fellows." "'Part Two "'It's no use, son.' "'I'll give up the blasted thing as a bad job. "'There's something queer there about that tree. "'Do you see how its branches balance it? "'We've cut the trunk nearly in two, but it won't come down. "'There's plenty of others round. We'll take one of them. "'If I would a long rope with me, I'd get that tree down. "'And yet the way the thing stands, it would be risking a fellow's life to climb it. "'It's got the devil in it for sure.' "'So old Farmer Brown shouldered his axe and made for another tree, his son following.' They had sawed and chopped and chopped and sawed, and yet the tall white oak, with its branches jutting out almost as regularly as if done by the work of a machine, stood straight and firm. Farmer Brown, well known for his weak, cowardly spirit, who, in beholding the murder of Albert Kelsey's daughter, had in his fright mistaken the criminal, now in his superstition let the oak stand, because its well-balanced position saved it from falling, when other trees would have been down. And so this tree— THE SAME ONE TO WHICH AN INNOCENT MAN HAD BEEN HANGED, WAS LEFT, FOR OTHER WORK. IT WAS A BLEAK, RAINY NIGHT, SUCH A NIGHT AS CAN BE FOUND ONLY IN CENTRAL CALIFORNIA. THE WIND HOWLED LIKE A THOUSAND DEMONS, AND LASHED THE TREES TOGETHER IN WILD EMBRACES. AND NOW AND THEN THE WEIRD HOOT, HOOT, OF AN OWL CAME SOFTLY FROM THE DISTANCE IN THE LULLS OF THE STORM, WHILE THE BARKING OF COYOTES WOKE THE ECHOES OF THE HILLS INTO SOUNDS LIKE FIENDISH laughter. In the wind and rain a man fought his path through the bush and into Farmer Brown's cross-cut as the shortest way home. Suddenly he stopped, trembling, as if held by some unseen impulse. Before him rose the white oak, wavering and swaying in the storm. "'Good God! It's the tree I swung Steadman from!' he cried, and a strange fear thrilled him. His eyes were fixed on it, held by some undefinable fascination. Yes, there on one of the longest branches— a small piece of rope still dangled. And then, to the murderer's excited vision, this rope seemed to lengthen, to form at the end into a slipknot, a knot that encircled a purple neck, while below it writhed and swayed the body of a man. "'Damn him!' he muttered, starting toward the hanging form, as if about to help the rope in its work of strangulation. "'Will he forever follow me?' And yet he deserved it, the black-hearted villain. He took her life! He never finished the sentence. The white oak, towering above him in its strength, seemed to grow like a frenzied living creature. There was a sudden splitting sound, then came a crash, and under the fallen tree lay Stedman's murderer, crushed and mangled. From between the broken trunk and the stump that was left, a gray, dim shape sprang out and sped past the man's still form, away into the wild blackness of the night." Thanks for joining us at 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new episode. Until then, everyone, stay safe.